If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open it or click to Psalm 138. Psalm 138. As a church, we, and I also want to just acknowledge how thankful I am as the eight to ten year, seven to ten year olds walk out, how thankful I am for the workers and for those sweet kids as they go to get age appropriate teaching. Thankful to God for all those who are serving our children in KTC. Turn to Psalm 138. As you're turning there, um, we take books of the Bible and work through them. We've just finished almost a two-year series in the book of Romans. And now we are, uh, in January, we seek to try to uh, remind one another of our vision as a church. What it what we have agreed to, who we have agreed to be and what we have agreed to do as a people, uh, Treasuring Christ Church, what unites us together, that we want to be a, a multi-ethnic gospel-formed family who seeks to be and make disciples, who treasure Christ, love the church, love the city, and love the world. There's a lot of different ways we do that, but foundationally and beginning this year, we have talked about the pillar that we want to go deep in our lives is that we rest in Jesus that we sit and are still with him, and that is what uh, I am going to focus on today, how we rest in Jesus through the word and prayer. We'll have three more weeks in this uh, month when we are going to be uh, talking through other uh, ideas that correspond to our vision, Uh, but for today, we're going to look at what it looks like to rest in Jesus through the word and prayer. So, I encourage you to turn to Psalm 138, which I will read, and then we will dive right in. If you're there, say, I'm there. Wonderful. Word of God reads as such. Psalm of David. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods or the angels, I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. There's a distance. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies. Your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Let's pray. Father, in this moment... I want to acknowledge that you are here. You, the living God of the universe, the creator of the ends of the earth, one who has no beginning or end, the Alpha and the Omega, you're here in our midst for our good and for your glory. And Lord, we pray that your name would be set apart in our hearts, would be hallowed. Father, we ask that you, the king of the universe, would come and be in our midst and you would shape us into people that follow you and reflect you with our lives. Lord, we ask for a special work of grace that you would intervene in those in this space 
who do not know you and you would save them, change them, flip them upside down and turn them from darkness to light. I pray, God, that you would move in their lives and now move through your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There are things that necessarily go together to give life. Let's think about eating. When you eat, you've got to chew and swallow for it to give life. Does that make sense? Right, like you eat something whole that's big, you choke and you die, right? That's not a helpful thing. So you chew, but if you just chew and then spit it out, you you kind of lose the nutrients, okay? And therefore you'll die again. Something, there's certain things that just necessarily go together. And in eating, it's chewing and swallowing. There's other things that go together like work and rest. If you don't work, Paul says you won't eat, right? You don't work, you don't eat. But physiologically, if you don't work, you'll atrophy. Your muscles will fatigue. You won't be able to move. So you're supposed to move and work. But if you only work, you'll die. You'll give out because you were supposed to rest. There's only one in the entire universe that doesn't need sleep, and it's our God. And when any of us act like we don't need it, we're trying to be God. We need it. We have limits. We're human. And so work and rest, they go together. There's another one. It's breathing. It's inhale. And it's exhale. They go together. If I just do this, and I stop, and nothing else happens, turn blue, pass out, whatever it is, they're meant to go together. If you just breathe out, you'll pass out. They go together. And it's this last one, this last one of breathing, which author of the book Deeper, Dane Ortland, uses to describe both the nature and the necessity of two other essentials in our life. It is two things that must go together. It's the word and prayer. The word and prayer. The word and prayer is like breathing in its nature. That means we must breathe in, that is take in God's word That's reading the Word. And we must breathe out God's Word in prayer. They go together. But also, just like breathing is necessary for life, the Word of God and prayer are necessary for spiritual life. What happens if you have sleep apnea? If you have sleep apnea, then there are seasons or periods while you sleep that you're not breathing. What are the common characteristics of those with sleep apnea? Fatigue, definite loss of sleep. Many times because of that fatigue, you have a fuzzy mind. (laughs) Like any of us, you lose sleep, you can be a little irritable. It's a necessity that you have to breathe. And like eating or breathing, word and prayer are essential for life. So, if I say, hey, you need to eat, more than likely you would not wave a flag and say, stop being a legalist. Stop telling me what to do. You'd be like, cool, I like to eat, thanks. And if you're holding your breath and turning blue and I say, hey, you need to breathe, you would not think I'm giving you some unnecessary, unloving constraint. You would think, yeah, that's probably good. I should breathe. Why is it when people get anxious, what do they tell you to do? Breathe. Breathe in, breathe out. Why is it whenever we start talking about the word and prayer, all of a sudden, all this other baggage starts loading on to the shoulders of those words? Why doesn't it feel like an invitation to love or just the common sense of I need it to live? It's the place of joy, an invitation to experience the depth of God's presence and love. Instead, for many of us, it feels like you're giving me another constraint. 
Many times it's because of our failures or internal sense of shame and neglect of these things. But today, my prayer is that we begin to see Bible reading and prayer not only as inextricably linked to each other, we need both word and prayer, but also as a joy, as something that is life-giving, vitally necessary for joy and peace and hope and love for the abundant life that God promises. So I pray what happens today is all ounces of legalistic constraint or more awareness of your failure than of God's invitation to experience his love, all of that would be pulled away and you would know God's love in this moment. So we're going to see it, Psalm 138. Psalm 138 and some other texts I'll look at, three main ideas. Word and prayer as praise, word and prayer as communion, and word and prayer as trust. So from Psalm 138, which I've already read, we're going to look at the word and prayer as praise, word and prayer as communion, word and prayer as trust. Let's begin with the first one. Word and prayer as praise. You dive right into this psalm, and what are the first words you hear? I give you what? Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I praise you. Why? Well, he tells us, First of all, the how. I thank you with all of my being, with my whole heart. And he says, the translation in the ESV, before the gods, I sing your praise. There are not really multiple gods. There's one God. But what we see in verse 2 is that more than likely what's in view is worship in the temple. And when the psalmist enters into the temple. He's entering into the temple for one main objective, and that is to experience the depth and joy of the presence of God. And while he's in the presence of God, he is declaring one thing, that although there are many idols, there are many false objects of worship all over the place, I am going to shout out loud, there is one God. So before all of these other gods... Before all of this other concept that there are other things to worship, there is one God. So actually, some people translate this as before the angels, because there are contexts with the temple that this very phrase is used to describe angels. Whether it's angels or describing the false gods, it doesn't matter. The point is, one true God, this psalmist with his whole heart in the presence of God is giving God praise. Why? For the word and prayer. Look at it. Verse 2. I give thanks to your name. Now what's a name? The name is God's character. The essence of who he is. How many of you have pulled for some, someone in sports? Or some musician that you love? Some politician or some other leader, you've pulled for them only to find out something that was pretty significantly flawed about their character. And then you're like, "Uh, I struggle now to support this person. You've been there. You know that. The psalmist is praising because there will never be that moment with God. There will never be a moment when his name Who he says he is doesn't match up with who he is. His essence and his character are true and sure. You can take it to the bank. What is his essence and character? It says, I give thanks to your name because of or for your steadfast love and faithfulness. That is his character. He is love. He is faithfulness. It's not an attribute he has that he can lose. He actually is steadfast love. He actually is faithfulness. For him not to be loving or not to be faithful is for him not to exist. The psalmist is praising and giving thanks because God is who he says he is. His character is inflappable, infallible. And it is a character of steadfast love 
and faithfulness. And so the psalmist goes on to say, for you have exalted above all things this character, who you are, and what you say about yourself, your word. God's word and his character described in his word is exalted above all things. And so the psalmist is saying, I praise you because of your word. I praise you. I give you thanks. But not only the word, but look at verse 3. On the day I called, you answered me. What is that describing? What does it mean for the psalmist to call on God? Not a trick question. It's prayer. It's prayer. Prayer is talking, singing, directing your heart to God. That's prayer. He says, on the day I prayed... The day I called, you answered me. And there was a result. My, my strength of soul increased. So why is he praising him in the temple? Because the word of God and the character of God that is revealed in his word are true and sure. And because when the psalmist prayed, God heard him and answered him. He's praising God because of the word and prayer. God speaks and God hears. No matter our pains, no matter our circumstances, no matter our depression or frustration, no matter our tense moments with friends, no matter our exasperation with a boss or a professor, or kids, or a spouse, we can all praise God that in His unfathomable love, He has not and is not playing hide-and-seek. No matter what is going on in our lives, we can all praise God that He has spoken to us and that He hears us. These are true things. He has given us His Son, who He describes as what? The Word. He's given us His Son, who is the Word. And this Word, Jesus Christ, He is the central figure, the main point of hope, the giver of joy, the most magnificent Savior. He is the central figure of the written Word of God. This God has spoken to us, and this God hears us. That's why it says on in the psalm that even kings, even kings, when they read this word, they, there's this sense of like, there's wisdom there. Isn't that, All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. When eyes are opened even to the greatest... To see the glory of God, they will too give thanks, praise, and sing of God's glory. So they're like breathing. Word and prayer. We need the intake of God's word and the exhale of God's words back to him. The word of God and the, our God speaks and hears. They should evoke praise in our hearts. There's a fascinating story. 1898, two traveling businessmen were in Boscobel, I think I'm saying that right, Wisconsin. If you're from Wisconsin and I totally botched it, let me know later. They're in Boscobel, Wisconsin, and they enter into the Central Hotel. And as they walk into the Central Hotel, there's a problem. There's two guys. Needing a room, and there's only one room left. So in 1898, a little different than today apparently, they both decide to occupy the same room. And while they're in this room, they start talking. They both realize they share a common faith in Jesus Christ. And as they talk, they begin to realize that there had been birthed within both of their hearts a desire to reach businessmen with the gospel. 
So they decided, why don't we try to have a gathering of Christian businessmen? This is a true story, by the way. I'm not making this up. So they have this gathering of Christian businessmen. They advertise for it, and guess how many come other than them? One. One guy. And so this one guy says, we should call ourselves the Gideons because Gideon won against a large army with just a few. So the three of them ended up still dreaming and praying about how they could reach business individuals with the gospel. Long story short, they had the idea that they would place Bibles in hotel rooms because many of the businessmen traveled a ton. Some of that was through going from hotel to hotel, and as they went, they would take a Bible to leave. Eventually, it began, they have distributed since 1908, 10 years after that first meeting, since 1908, they have distributed 1.7 billion Bibles in over 190 countries. I'm telling you, these gadgets are a blessing and a curse. I have no idea what I just said that made my watch want to scream at me, but it did. Doesn't like my tone, I guess. I'll work on it. I never knew fully what the Gideon Bible was. Was it like a weird translation? Was it a... No, it's just a normal Bible. (laughs) Many times it's the King James Version. But it has an intro written in it. And I want to read the intro to you. And I think this is reason to praise God for the word. The intro goes like this. The Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy. Its precepts are binding. Its histories are true. And its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise. Believe it to be safe. And practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It's a traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's character. Here, paradise is restored. Heaven opened and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory Rule the heart and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. It is given you in life. It will be opened at the judgment and be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility rewards the greatest labor, and will condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. This is why we praise God for His Word. Those words are true about the Word of God. His Word is alive. Unlike any other book, on every page, God is speaking to His people. It is, it doesn't say everything there is to say about everything, but everything it says is God's infallible and inerrant word, life-giving words. And so Dane Ortland in his book, Deeper, I want you to hear this and may it encourage you not only to praise God for his word, but to pick up his word. You will stand in strength and grow in Christ and walk in joy and bless the world No further than you know this book. There's no other thing to know that will have that effect in your life. The word is a precious gift, but so is prayer. That this God not only speaks to us, but he wants to hear us. He wants us to speak to Him and to give Him everything in our lives. I have a quote from Paul Miller on the preciousness of prayer. All of this, the hope is that it would just make your heart praise God for the Word and prayer. Here's prayer. 
What do I lose when I have a praying life, Paul Miller said? I lose control. (laughs) Okay, so are you wanting me to praise you for prayer or? Yeah. What do I lose when I have a praying life? I lose control. Independence. But what do I gain? Friendship with God. A quiet heart. The living work of God in the hearts of those I love. The ability to roll back the tide of evil. Essentially, I lose my kingdom and get his. I move from being an independent player to a dependent lover. I move from being an orphan to a child of God. He goes on to say, there's two ways of getting things done. Self-will and prayer are both ways of getting things done. At the center of self-will is me. Carving a world in my image. But at the center of prayer is God. Carving me in his son's image. That's why prayer is beautiful. God shapes me. He moves in me and through me. This is the gift of prayer of God to us. Praise God for his word and for prayer. But we praise him not just because he speaks and he hears. But we praise him because his speaking and hearing is actually inviting us to experience Him. We can love ideas. There's a book. It's great. It's the Word. We can love ideas. Prayer. This is a good religious duty. No. God speaking and God hearing us pray is evidence of the invitation that says, I want you to be with me, God says. The greatest gift God is giving to us is himself. That's why the word and prayer are not only objects to praise God over, but the word and prayer are communion with God. Word and prayer as communion. Zoom in with me on verses 2 and 3 of Psalm 138. It says, I bow down toward your holy temple. I give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. The praise is coming. From the psalmist, not just because these are good ideas, but because he is walking into the presence of God. The living God of the universe wants to be with him. And the psalmist wants us to take a deep dive into who God is. His name, his character is steadfast love and faithfulness. And steadfast love and faithfulness are not only connected here in Psalm 138, but they're connected all throughout the Scriptures. Even Pastor Travis quoted a passage last week from Lamentations 3. Do you remember that? Probably slept since then, but I get it. Lamentations 3 says this, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Remember this passage? His mercies never come to an end. They are new in every morning. Great is your what? Faithfulness. That's what we sang. Steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Great is your faithfulness. Why are they so connected? I was reading in the scriptures this past year, reading through the Bible, and Jeremiah 31 was a really precious passage. In the midst of the just judgment of the people of Israel for their complete rejection of God and rebellion against him, he says this, Jeremiah 31, 1-4, At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel and they shall be my people. And the way we read this, this New Testament, followers of Jesus, is that all the promises are yes and amen in Christ. This affection that God has for Israel is the same affection that God has for us because of faith in Jesus. So when he says, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, they shall be my people, he's saying, you're going to be my people. But listen to what that means. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. Hear these words. I am. Have loved you with an everlasting love. And what are the next words? Therefore, because I love you, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Why are they connected? They're connected because the God who loves you 
His love means he will be faithful to do all that he says he will do. And what does that faithfulness look like? That faithfulness is his unwavering love is a pledge to his unwavering faithfulness. It means, he says, I will build you. You shall be built. It means he'll be for us. He'll work for us and on us to strengthen us, to calm our fears and to give us peace. What a precious gift. Our God loves us. And because he does, proven at Calvary, he will always be faithful to us. Always. Every word of his proves true. And so when Jesus looks at his followers and he says in John 15, 9, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. When he says in Psalm 46, 10, Be still and know that I am God. He is inviting us into where life is found. It is to sit, to read slowly, thoughtfully and prayerfully, as the Gideon Bible introduction said. It's an invitation to sit and to be with Jesus. Because he loves us, he is faithful to us. Now I tell you, my own personal Bible reading began to transform when I began to acknowledge how I was treating it and acknowledge one other thing. How was I treating it? It's just really tempting when you're reading the Bible to treat it as a book to give you knowledge, right? Because many times the more you read it and show that you know something, the more then people really think you're impressive because you know things. So we can read for knowledge, and it's just, I want to learn facts. But then we begin to treat kind of everything in this mechanical way. Prayer can be treated as just this, it's a religious ritual, it's what I'm supposed to do. Coming to church, it's obeying a command. Loving somebody else, it's because it's the right thing to do. All of those are true things, but they're incomplete statements. When I realized that the word was not just something to give me knowledge, but the word was, this is the other thing that I was awakened to. It's where I meet the living God and he's right there with me. You might notice when I pray, many times I will out loud, God, you are here. You're present. I just encourage you to do that. Just a five, ten second prayer right before you read God's word. Or as you are starting your prayers, just acknowledge what is true. God, you're here. You're present. All of a sudden, it flips on its head. Reading is communing with a person. Praying is talking to the living God who's right there with you and for you with that great steadfast love and exercising faithfulness. It transforms it from a transaction to a relationship. God, you're here. And you love me. And I need you. Oh, that God would give us eyes to see. When we come to church, I come here because I genuinely believe I will experience a uniqueness of God's presence in a way that I cannot experience if I don't come and gather with the people of God. When I love other people, I genuinely believe what the Great Commission says, which is there's a unique experience of God's presence when I am out loving people and making disciples of all nations. Isn't that what he says? Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the, name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I command, and what? Behold, I'm with you. In the context of loving your neighbor is a unique experience of the presence of God. God's presence transforms duty to delight. And so I pray that not only do you praise God for the word and prayer, but that you begin to see the word and prayer as 
communion. Because here's the deal. You need God's word more than you will ever know. And here's why. There's a lot of words being said to you. There's a lot of words being said to you. Our culture gives you words, right? You watch TV for any amount of time, you get words. You look at social media, you get words. What kind of words? Words that tell you you need to cancel or get back or seek revenge or ridicule others to elevate yourself, to demean other people's thoughts, image. And yet, we hear a better word in God's word that says, consider others better than yourself. That says, encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so you aren't hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We hear a better word. And not only are there words being spoken to us in our culture, but there are words being spoken in our minds and in our hearts. We tell ourselves we're constantly defeated. The scripture says there's victory to be found in Christ. We tell ourselves we're too weak to make a difference. The scripture says in your weakness, his strength is made perfect. Your words talk about often your regrets and your failures. And God speaks words of forgiveness. You think about how you are being forgotten by other people. And God's word says, I will never forget you. I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your mind, your heart says, I will never be known. And God says, I have known you. I love you. And I call you precious. You need a better word. For all the stinking words that are running through your heart and mind, you need a better word. And whenever your suffering says, I'm not loved. God's not with me. You need a better word that looks at the cross and says, my Savior proved definitively his love. And that while we were still sinners, he died for us. And he says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. We need a better word. And friends, there's an accuser out there. The devil, he speaks words. He speaks words of accusation. And let me just let you in. Sometimes he's spot on. You're angry. You lust. You lie. You cheat. You want to get ahead. You covet. You want yourself more than you want something for other people. And many times, he's right. What do you do when those words come? And deep down, you don't have a defense. Jesus speaks a better word. He speaks a better word. And on the cross, he says, It is finished. It's a better word. All the pain, all the guilt, all the sin, it was placed upon his shoulders. And he says, The payment is finished. It's finished. You need to hear a different word. When the devil wants you to be characterized by your failures, Jesus wants you to be characterized by your belief in Christ. There's a better word. And I think of that precious song we sing before the throne of God above. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. And because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just, he's satisfied to look on Jesus and pardon me. Those are the words. Pardoned, forgiven, loved, righteous in Christ. The accuser has no grounds anymore. 
You will never have the tools you need, the life you need, the hope you need, the ammunition you need in those moments of crisis unless you are listening to God's word and communing with the God who says, I love you and I'm with you. Oh, dear friends, we not only praise God for his word and that he hears us, we want him, him, That's why we are in the Word and in prayer. He and His mysterious love has said, I'm revealing myself to you and I'm with you and I want to hear all your mess, all your junk. I want you to bring everything to me. Nothing's off limits. That's why Paul talks about praying constantly. You can't pray constantly out loud and actually do work and like talk to other people, right? Like, He's saying the bent of your heart is an awareness that God is always with you. And therefore, you're always taking things to God. Always. Because you know He's right there. That's the heart that believes God is with you. And that's the last point. Word and prayer as trust. When you stop and read God's word, when you stop and pray, you are actually saying, God, even sometimes when I don't feel it, I trust that you're here. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Where is God uniquely found? With the lowly. With the contrite. What are the contrite and lowly characterized by? Praise for? Dwelling with God in his word and in prayer. That's what the word and prayer are. It is a declaration that I am needy. God, you are not. I love you. I want to sit with you. Teach me. Shape me. It's an expression of trust. And that's why the psalmist continues to just take his heart to the Lord in prayer. Look at verse 7. Though I walk in the midst of trouble... I'm going to take that trouble to you. Do you see the you language here? This is a prayer. This is in part why I chose a psalm and not many other texts that I could have chosen is that the psalms are a gift to us on how people pray. These are prayers. Verse 7 is a prayer. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. It's not that all the trouble goes away. It's just that you're protecting and taking care of me. Isn't that what Psalm 23 says? You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. What a mysteriously beautiful passage. You're sitting at a table feasting away and enemies are all around you coming at you. Where does that come from? Because our God is with you. He's your protector. This is what prayer does. God, I trust you to preserve my life when everything around me says the opposite. This is what the psalmist is doing in Psalm 138. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand delivers me. That doesn't happen immediately. But you have to declare what you know is true that God is working to defend you and care for you. Even if seeing that might be months, years away. Verse 8, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do you see how he's taking in the word? How does he know the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever? Because he's read his Bible. But then what does he do with the Bible that he's read? Lord, your steadfast love is forever. He gives it back. Because the outlouding of God's word transforms the inward heart. God, your steadfast love endures forever. You're faithful to all generations. And so he says, don't forsake the work of your hands. You promise not to forsake me. Don't forsake me. I need you. He's praying. Prayer is an expression of trust in the promises of God. And you might say, but what about, what about if he doesn't answer my prayer? What about if I pray and I don't see clearly him answering? 
Well, I was really helped as I was listening to um, Tara Lee Cobble. It's called the Bible Recap. She says this about a passage in John 16, verse 23. John 16, 23 says this. In that day you will ask nothing of me, first of all. <laughs> let me j- that sentence right there caught me off guard. John 16, 23. Jesus is talking about the fact that he is going to die and come again, be raised to new life. And he's telling his disciples, when you see the resurrected Christ, in that day you will ask nothing of me. Let us sink in. When you see the resurrected Christ, you will be so so fulfilled, you will not have anything you can think of to ask for. Come on. Nothing you can think of. I just fully satisfied. There's not one thing that comes to my mind that I'm like, oh, but I, I got it. You just be like, yes, it's all clear. Okay, now I'm going on because that wasn't really the main idea. Truly, truly, it says in verse 23, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Tara Lee Cobble says this. This is an amazing safety valve built into our prayers. He will say yes to anything that corresponds to his will and glorifies his name. And thankfully, no to whatever doesn't. That is such a gift to us. It means we don't have to figure out what is best before we pray. We can just ask And trust him to do what is best. I'm so grateful for that personally, she says. Because I've asked for a lot of foolish things. Or a lot of things that in hindsight, they would not have been good for me or those around me. I've even seen the struggles that I've prayed to go away were the very means of strengthening me or those I love and giving them more perspective and hope and comfort than I could have imagined. This safety valve helps me to talk to him openly, honestly in the present, without having to stop and figure out the future. This is a grid to help us when we think God is not answering our prayers. We can just trust that God knows what is best. That's why the word in prayer are not only what we praise God for, and it's not only time that we spend with him, but it's our exercise to say, God, I trust you. I don't see everything, God, and I want to acknowledge that. So, Pastor John Piper's mom wrote this in the front of his Bible when she gave him his Bible, and it says this, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. And so I want to hold out for you. This book will keep you from sin. And you want to know what else it'll do? These are the words I end on. Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure and it makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them, there is great reward. We praise God that he delights to be with us. And so we sit with him and trust him in the word and in prayer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for loving us. And I pray that right now you would commune with us in power. Father, I ask that the upshot of this moment that we have had together is an excitement. It's not a declaration that we're going to be perfect and read the Bible every day or pray throughout the day. But it's a declaration of, oh God, how we need to. How we need you. 
God, I pray that the image of breathing or eating would be life-giving. Word and prayer are an invitation to be with you and that you want to be with us. And so, Father, I pray that this moment to take the Lord's Supper together would be a time when we can come to you and confess our sin. Confess anything that stands in the way between us and you. But also confess our faith. Confess what is true. Your name and your character are sure. Your word is alive. Oh God, rejoice the heart of your people today. And so right now, I just ask, I ask that you would meet with us right now, Father. And that church, you would take this moment right now to set your heart before the Lord. Hold nothing back. Acknowledge his presence. If you feel your belief is low, confess that. If you're not a Christian in this moment, maybe for the first time, God, by the power of his word, by the power of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit, he has stirred something in you to where you now see that you cannot fix your sin problem. And the invitation to you today is to confess your sin. Confess that Jesus stood in your place. Jesus rose from the grave and he alone can deal with your sin problem and make all things new in your heart and grant you eternal life. If that is you, take this time to confess to Jesus not only your sin, but who you believe him to be. Let's take a moment of reflection before we take the Lord's Supper together.